all month we've been looking at the names of Jesus that come to us from Isaiah 9-6. And we have seen that he is a wonderful counselor, the best and wisest friend we will ever have. He is the mighty God, able to do what no one else can do, and even in you and in me. He is our everlasting Father. The Father, as the author, the owner of eternity, is able to give eternity to us. He's chosen to give that through Christ. And as we saw at the Christmas Eve service, he is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace between us and God, and peace between us and other people, and even peace to the deepest parts of our own hearts and souls. As we've looked at these names of Jesus, we've realized that they're really just a small number of the names Jesus has. Maybe you've seen that poster in a Bible bookstore that has all these different names. It's like the whole thing is like a confusing picture until you get closer to it, and then you realize these are all names of Jesus that we find in the pages of Scripture. How many other names can we come up together with this morning? Just if you have a name of Jesus, just shout it out for us. Anybody? All right? All right? Prince of Peace. The Great I Am. What? Alpha and Omega. Keep going. Light of the World. Son of Man, Abba, Yahweh. Okay? I didn't hear that one. The Great I Am. Okay? We could go on and on with different names. If you think about it long enough, you realize that there's uh, like more than 100 names that we would use there. No name can fully capture who Jesus is. That's why we have so many, because human beings are trying to capture his essence, capture his, his character and, and everything that we do know about him. And there's even a lot more that we don't know that we possibly uh, could not name for. Uh, we just wanted to try and appreciate better what he means to us, to each one of us. Well, Jesus uh, knew that in his day that people had some idea of who he was, and and one day during his ministry, or during his, his time on earth, he, he was asking his disciples about this, you know, uh, what are people saying? What are people thinking? Uh, who do they think the Son of Man is? And it's Matthew 16 who tells us about this. He tells us about this day that he asked this question. And he says that, that where they were was a place called Caesarea Philippi. And this scene that's pictured up here is that uh, approach to the city that we think probably Jesus and the disciples were on. As they approached this city that set up on top of this, this big hill, this big rock, they saw the entrances here, all these carvings into it. You see in the second picture here, uh, a little closer up view of that. There were these little niches that people had carved actually into the rock. And in the days of Jesus in the first century, the people, the locals, had put their gods and goddesses in these little niches. They would take out their idol, and they would, in an act of, of reverence or honoring them, worshiping them, they would set them in these little places. And so it's very likely that when Jesus and his disciples walked up to Caesarea Philippi, here were all these gods and goddesses of the world, pictured on the wall in front of them as they approached the city. And perhaps in this very setting, uh, Jesus sat down with his disciples and he said, who do people say I am? Now they've got all these other people around, all these other gods and goddesses that are worshipped by man. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Let's read together from Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who, is, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So Jesus began by asking them about everybody else's thoughts about him. Who do other people say that I am? But he very quickly moved to the more important question for them. What about you? Who do you say that I am? You've been around me for a while. You've been around me for months, even years. And now I want to ask you, who do you think I am? Would you stake your life on your answer? That question is way more personal. That question is way more convicting. And it is the big question for today as our final sermon in the AKA Jesus series and the final sermon of this year, 2014. What do you call Jesus? There are a lot of names for Jesus, but what do you call him? If you were the one giving him a name this morning, what name would you choose? And before you even get to answer, you might think of these other names we've already thrown out here. Someone else, they said, light of the world. Before you even answer, I want to tell you something. You have already answered the question. You have already given the answer to this question, what do you say Jesus' name is? And you've done it not with your words, but with your life. You've done it with your actions. You have said by the way you respond to Jesus, by the way you live for Jesus, what you really think of him. What name you prefer to call him by. No matter what we say, our actions speak louder than our words. How we treat Jesus, how we respond to Jesus, already answers this question, what do you call him? And here are the kinds of things that maybe people call Jesus today. Not to his face. They wouldn't say this to his face. But their actions say, one name, sugar daddy. <laughs> You're my sugar daddy. You're there for me when I need something. You take care of me. You please me. You watch out for me. You provide for me whatever I need. And you're just the one I go to as my sugar daddy. You take care of me. Or maybe another name, get out of jail free card. <laughs> I want your grace. I want forgiveness. I want eternal life. I want heaven someday. I want all the things you're going to provide for me by your grace. I'm going to accept that, but don't make any demands. You're just my get-out-of-jail-free card, and I'm kind of holding you in my pocket, waiting for that day that I pass from this life to the next, and then I'm going to pull out my card and I'm going to say, here it is. I got it. I'm ready to go. Or maybe you think of him as your doctor on call. You know, you get sick, you call on him. You get discouraged and depressed, and you turn to him, but really not much of any other time. And so he's just kind of the you know, frequently called number on your cell phone. You, you call him on the emergency line, and once again, you're calling on God, but only when you're in a bind, only when you need some help. Maybe he is God on a shelf. You know, some of you have Elf on a shelf. Maybe God is a God on a shelf. Maybe you just kind of have him hanging around, kind of like your Bible, you know, that you don't pick up a lot, but every once in a while, you know it's there, you can turn to it if you need it, and he's kind of watching over things, 
but not directly involved in your life unless you want him to be. You know, in the households I know of, someone else moves Fred to other places. <laughs> uh, don't want to give away a lot of stuff there for any kids that may still be in here. But God is keep trying to treat it like this honored guest. You know, Rick Warren says it this way. He says, when God moves into your life, when Jesus comes into your life, he's supposed to go into every room of the house, which is your life. But a lot of us leave him in the foyer, or maybe into the living room. Maybe we bring him into the formal living room or dining room and say, just stay here because I've got this all cleaned up nice for you. You'll be really comfortable here. But we really don't want him getting into the kitchen where the real activity happens. We really don't want him getting into the, the mudroom. We don't want him getting into the bedroom. We don't want him getting into the places where we actually live and see all of that. And so God remains kind of the God on the shelf. God is the God of the living room or the foyer of our house, not where we actually live. For a lot of people, this is a name we use, Sunday morning only God. God is somebody that we honor, we worship him, we go to church, we've got an hour or two where God gets everything that we could offer him, but the rest of the week is ours. And we do what we want to do in the other 166 hours of the week. God got his due in that little Sunday morning outing that we had there. So what do you call Jesus on Sunday may not be what you call Jesus on Monday or maybe on Friday and Saturday nights when you're out hanging out with your friends. You know, now, Jesus, stay back there on Sunday, stay out of this part of my life. All of these names, you see, betray the fact that we're not relating to Jesus as we should. That he must be our Savior and our Lord, the Bible says. And when we make him our Lord, then that's a big deal. Because he becomes our boss and our master. You see, he must be our Savior and our Lord, or he's nothing at all. It's, it's take all or nothing kind of arrangement. And we try to just take pieces. We try to just take part of what Jesus is offering, the parts that are most savory to us, the parts that are most pleasing to us, and the rest of the stuff, we really don't want to deal with that. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. The good confession that is included here in Matthew 16, 16 is what we call Peter's response, the good confession. He, he spoke up when Jesus said, what do you call me? He said, well, you're the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one. You are the, the deliverer, the son of the living God. You are distinct from anyone else, and we know it. And he took his stand for Christ in that little setting. And Jesus said to him, you know, you're blessed for this. This is not something you got for man. This is something that God revealed to you. And on this confession, I am going to build my church, and it will be able to overcome hell itself. This is the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one God sent to save us all, and he is the only one sent. Jesus made this good confession too, didn't he? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about how as it got down to the last moments of his earthly life before he was crucified, and he was taken in these, these kind of mockery trials before the high priest, and then before Pilate, the Roman governor. And as he's before the high priest, you know, they're just trying to get him to answer all these accusations. They're throwing at him. They bring in all these false witnesses. And finally, at the end of it, the high priest says, just tell us, you know, just tell us plainly, are you the Christ or not? Matthew says that the high priest asked him, he says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ or not. You know, they're frustrated. They want to know the answer. Jesus is saying nothing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. 
and in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. There you go. You want it? There it is. I am the Son of God, he said. I am the Christ. And someday you're going to look up into heaven and see me sitting next to God. And Matthew tells us that the high priest tore his robes and cried out, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? What do you think? And the rest of them said, He is worthy of death. And they took him out and they crucified him. There is a cost to making the good confession. There has always been a cost. There always will be a cost. And it's the cost we avoid. It's the cost that we try to neglect, that we try to shove off into the living room or the foyer of our lives. Don't ever let this thing about the, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord and Savior of my life, enter into the back rooms of my life. Just between you and me, I think this is why Jesus commanded baptism right off the moment, the, 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 beginning when somebody decides to become a Christian, when they decide to follow Christ, he said, I want you to repent, I want you to believe, I want you to confess, talking about that today, and I want you to be baptized into Christ. Why? Why is that so urgent? Why is that so important? You see in the book of Acts, over and over again, when somebody comes to Christ, immediately they're baptized. When the Philippian jailer and his family believe in Christ, in the middle of the night, after an earthquake, first thing they do is get baptized. Why? It's because... God wants to know, are you ready to surrender? Because baptism means you surrender. It means you give up. You don't baptize yourself. Somebody else takes your body and lowers it into the water, and you're stuck there unless they bring you back up. And you're saying to God in that moment, you've got it. You've got it all. I'm holding nothing back. And I believe that's why Jesus says, be baptized. Because I want to know. Are you fully committed to this or not? Is this just an idea? Is this just a whim? Is this just a Sunday morning only thing? Or do you really believe this? Are you ready to fully surrender to me, not only as Savior, but as Lord? Well, we've just come through the Christmas season. It always kind of, kind of tickles me how people are so enamored with the baby in the manger. You know, even if they're not a Christian, even if they don't believe in the rest of the the stuff about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, all of that, they still love you know, the nativity scene. They still love looking down at the creche and, and you see the baby in the manger and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and eventually out there is the wise men, the whole thing. They love that part. You see, they're very comfortable as long as Jesus is a baby in a manger because he's no threat. He's not making any demands on their life. But when Jesus grew up and Jesus gave his life and he made the good confession and he came back as the resurrected Lord, guess what? It all changes, doesn't it? Now he's expecting to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings and that's a very different story. And so, because we're uncomfortable with that, we come up with our actions that, that kind of give these other names like Sugar Daddy or God on a shelf or Sunday morning only God. And treating Jesus this way is absurd. It's absurd. It's, it's crazy. It's horrible. Because Jesus deserves so much better than that. Here's a guy who gave everything for us. Who laid down his life for us. And then we treat him like 
chopped liver or something. You know, we treat him like ground up baloney. You know, like it just doesn't matter. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a pastor in Germany when Hitler was uh, coming up through into power and, and really you know, trying to stop this nonsense, stop the madness in his own country. And he was one of the few Christians, few Christian pastors who was preaching against this and saying this is not right. And eventually he... He, he decided Hitler needed to be stopped and he got to be part of a plot where they tried to take his life. They tried to kill the Fuhrer. And they were captured and thrown into prison. Eventually, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung for his treason against Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. But while he was there in prison, he, he did some writing. He wrote a book that some of you have read called The Cost of Discipleship. And he brought out a, a distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is, is you know, when doesn't mean very much. It doesn't matter very much. But costly grace matters a great deal. He says this, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. Remember the guy went and sold everything he had so he could buy it. Costly grace is, is the pearl of great price. For the sake of it, the merchant sells all that he has. It is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. So this week, a new year begins. We've gone through this a few times. However many years you've lived, you've been through New Year's, okay? Pretty, pretty much, that's the way it goes, right? Every year we do this. It's an annual event. And it's become kind of a routine. Sometimes we sit back and we evaluate the year and we look at the things where we fail and we make these resolutions and we say, I'm going to try harder in this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And sometimes we don't try at all because we're so sick of getting to January and about mid-month saying, I've already messed up everything. So I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to play that game. And so New Year's is a big deal, or at least it should be, but we would rather just kind of skip through it. Not really think about where we are. I want you to think about where you are. I want to think about where I am. That if my actions have been saying what I really call Jesus, and I don't like what those actions have said, what they have called him, then I need to make some changes here. I need to make some changes first in how I view Jesus and how I react and respond to Jesus. Will there be any significant change in your life, your attitudes, your behavior, your holiness? in 2015, or will you end 2015 pretty much where you're ending 2014? Would you be satisfied with that? I wouldn't be. I hope you wouldn't be. So I hope that today we can decide that we as a people, we as individuals, will name Jesus through our actions something than what we've been naming him up to this point. I want to look with you at one other passage of scripture today. It's over in Luke chapter 18. 
Luke chapter 18, we find one event in Jesus' earthly ministry that kind of stood out to me as, wow, this, this guy got it. This guy understood what was going on here, and Jesus rewarded him because he got it, because he made the change he needed to make there. It's a story about a blind beggar. And as Jesus is going through the streets of these cities and towns, there were all these people clamoring for his attention. There were hundreds of people that were sick or demon-possessed or had some concern in their, their family, and they wanted Jesus to take care of that. And this blind beggar is lost in the crowd, crying out, hoping that Jesus will notice him. And Jesus does, thankfully. Look at chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him. I told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me! Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, this is an interesting question, what do you want me to do for you? It's not a smart aleck question. There's a point to this question. What do you want me to do for you? I know you're blind, I can see that. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. A lot of people were calling out for Jesus to heal him that day. But Jesus turned aside to see what this one man wanted, what this man needed. Maybe there was some idea in Jesus' heart of why this would be a different conversation than others that he would have that day. His need for sight was obvious. But Jesus wanted the man to verbalize what he needed. What do you want me to do for you? What do you imagine today that you're that blind beggar? may not be blindness. may be some other frailty of your life. It may be a frailty in your heart. maybe in your mind. Maybe it is a physical infirmity. Maybe it's a family issue. Maybe it's a job issue. I don't know what it would be. But if you are the one that is broken, you're the one that is needing to be mended and one to be fixed and healed or whatever, that you are the one that Jesus turns to. And he says to you, what do you want me to do for you today? What is it that you want from me? And he wants you to verbalize that as clearly as you possibly can. What is your brokenness? What is the heartache of your life? that you would speak to Jesus. You don't have to earn his favor. You don't have to merit his love. That's what grace is about. He's already given it. He's already willing. But he wants you to know what it is that he's done for you after he's done it. And he wants you to go on your way rejoicing so that everyone else around you can rejoice and bring praise to him, not to you, for what God has done in your life. Jesus wants to know if we really trust him. He wants to know if we really want the changes that only he can make to our lives. Or do we only want pieces? Do we only want partial Jesus? Because to state what you need from Jesus is to open your heart, open your life, and say, Lord, come and do what only you can do. Whatever that is, you come and do that. 
We must choose Jesus because Jesus is a gentleman. Jesus doesn't force himself on any of us. That's what free will is about, and that's why it's always there. So we must choose Jesus. We must decide just how much he really means to us. And we must do that every day. This will never stop from this day until the day that you die. You will have to keep choosing Jesus. And that's why Jesus can be Lord and Savior today, and tomorrow you forget all about it. That's why Jesus can be up there, you know, high and mighty over your life, ruling your life, commanding your life, in control of your life. And then Friday night comes, and Jesus isn't anywhere to be found in your mind. You're just doing whatever you want to do. Every day we must make this choice. Every day we must make this decision of how much Jesus really means to us. And this is the tricky, slippery part of a relationship with God. It's nothing to do with Him because He's faithful. It's all about us. It's all about the fact that we just have a hard time staying in there, being fully committed all the time. We have the power of Almighty God to automatically, immediately change anything in our lives that needs to be changed. The only thing that makes that a problem is us. We can so quickly short-circuit that power by just not thinking about it or by having some other harebrained idea suddenly. Oh, I'll go trace after that. And what is demanded is us is that we acknowledge only God can do it and keep on acknowledging that, choosing God and choosing Jesus to be not only Savior but Lord of our life. There was a man who had a pet snake. He's living in this aquarium, had a you know cage top on it and everything, so he stayed right there in this aquarium all the time. And because this is what you do for some snakes, he brought home a live mouse to feed it, this little white mouse. Well, he's gone through this many times. He brings this mouse from the the pet shop to feed his pet snake and he drops him in there and the snake is asleep over in the corner all curled up in the corner and he watches to see what the mouse does well the mouse knows he's in trouble <laughs> he's, his, his sworn enemy is over in the corner of the aquarium and so what this mouse starts doing is taking all the wood chips and piling up over there on that snake <laughs> and he's just watching with fascination as this mouse is just covering up the snake until eventually you can't see the snake anymore and finally the mouse starts to breathe a little easier can't see him. Can't see him. But what actually saved that mouse's life, you know, had to be the owner. Because as soon as the snake woke up, he'd have lunch, wouldn't he? But the owner, out of compassion, took the lid off, reached in and grabbed that mouse and saved his life. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah, we didn't want to see that mouse eating anyhow. The solution came from the outside. No matter how hard we try to cover up or deny these issues in our lives, our sin, our brokenness, our failures, our past mistakes, all of those shortcomings that just kind of keep weighing in on us if we allow that in this burden that we're carrying of guilt and shame and embarrassment. If we just try to cover all of that, if we try to deny our sinful nature, it is fool's work. Because sin will eventually awake from sleep and shake off its cover. And were it not for the saving grace of our Master's hand, sin would eat us alive, wouldn't it? So this morning, in one final act of 2014, could we make a decision as individuals, as a church, 
to admit our failures, our brokenness, our feelings of unworthiness, our failures and, and failings before God, and to just get brutally honest with God. As Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do for you today? Then we could give that answer as clearly as we possibly could and acknowledge that he is the only one that can make that answer. He is the only one that can solve that issue and can mend our brokenness and bring us not only through brokenness like you still have a little limp, but no, no making stronger than you ever were before because it's the power of God we're talking about here. Confession is not only confession of Christ as the Son of God, as the only Savior of the world, but confession of who I am and why I need Him and what I've done. Good confession is making Jesus both Lord and Savior. Have you done that? Have you made Him the Lord of your life as well as the Savior of your soul? If not, you still have time. And you can get this right as we enter 2015 together. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your love that is um, far greater than we yet understand. Thank you for your grace that provides for us in our brokenness and our fears and our failures. And we thank you for Jesus who willingly came to this earth not only to be that cute little baby in a manger, but also the Lord of lords and the King of kings. To be the Jesus who went to the cross and suffered terrible, agonizing death because he made a good confession before those who were really acting as your enemies. Lord, I pray today as we uh, come together into this new year that we would hear your question, what can I do for you? And we would make a different answer to who you are in our lives. We wouldn't try and keep you on a shelf or out to some outside room of the house, but that we would invite you fully into the very center of who we are to heal the brokenness and to provide the solutions only you can provide. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling today. Some are going through some very deep issues right now that I'm not even sure how I would face if I had them. But you are there. And you are stronger, you are more capable than anything we could ever face in this life. We, we turn to you, and as you ask that question, what can I do for you? Uh, it's easy for some people to say exactly what that is, because it's so painful, so, so much right in their face. I pray for them. I pray that you would meet them today, and they would meet you, and you would bring healing to their lives. There's someone here today, Lord, that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life, may they come to Jesus today before time is too late. Lord, I thank you for Jesus that uh, is there for us constantly. Help us, Lord, to, to be more uh, committed, to be more surrendered to him, and not so forgetful, not so easily distracted as we enter this new year together. May we make this choice every day that Jesus would be Lord and Savior to us. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to sing about our beliefs in Christ. And I know we're going to say 